0: If there is a biblical scene that we wish we could have witnessed, if God says you can be there for one event, Christmas would probably be towards the top of most of our lists, I would imagine. You know, maybe Elijah calling down fire from heaven. Maybe Moses parting the Red Sea. But when you really think about it, like I wish I could have been there to see the angels sing and then come with the shepherds to, to see the baby born in the manger. But the funny thing is, to our astonishment, when the event actually happened, almost everybody missed it. Almost everybody who had the privilege to live at such a time missed the birth of the Messiah. And we don't want to get too hard on them for that, but Jesus will explain later that you should have known what these times were. They had the Old Testament prophecies, like we're going to read this morning. In fact, when King Herod calls in the priests and the scribes to ask, where is the Messiah to be born? They knew. Micah. It says he's going to be born in Bethlehem. And Matthew chapter 2 is where that, that story is. So, He heard the Messiah was about to be born. They knew where he was going to be born. The shepherds saw angels and began spreading the word to everybody they knew. The wise men came from the east, which would have been a major event. said that all Jerusalem was afraid, so they knew what was going on. It sparked a massacre of all these little baby children. You don't think people were wondering about that? Zechariah, the priest, had come out of the holy place, struck dumb, because he had seen an angel as well, you'd think that these people would have have known or at least been paying some attention. It is unfortunate that most of the most miraculous works of God are missed by his people. Not just by people, by his people. You look through every great revival in history, and the unfortunate thing is most of the time the institutionalized church misses it. Leonard Ravenhill would often say revivals don't happen in the church. Revivals happen outside the church and catch the attention of the church. That's what happened, right? That was Martin Luther and the Reformation. It was was outside the church. He never wanted it to be, but there it went. George Whitefield and John Wesley, they weren't allowed to preach in the churches. They were out preaching to the coal miners when they were on their way to work. You know, with the pickaxe over their shoulder. They're out there preaching and getting, you know, knocked off the, uh, the pulpit and, and getting dead animals thrown at them and stuff. And, you know, even recently in the, the Jesus movement, it was happening on the beaches in Southern California. It wasn't happening in all these churches that we had. I don't think it has to be that way, but it often does turn out that way, doesn't it? And we're going to see that in the same place where Isaiah prophesied the birth of the Messiah, he also gives a warning to the people against distraction, and focus on temporal things that would cause them to miss the Messiah. Because the world, and thereby the church, is always alarmed by something. There's always something catching our attention. And we tend to think that the things that are our priorities, and our concerns, and our fears, therefore must be those things of the Lord. And so we look to where the noise is happening and expect that's where God's going to have to step in and do something, when very often God says, that's not where the action is. I've got something else going on, and that's exactly what happened at Christmas time. So we're going to read this, and this passage starts out rather sad and down and a little depressing, but as you all know, it's going to build up to this glorious conclusion. So let's begin in Isaiah chapter 8, and we'll read verses 11 through 15. For the Lord spoke thus to me with his strong hand upon me and warned me not to walk in the way of this people, saying, do not call conspiracy all that this people calls conspiracy and do not fear what they fear, nor be in dread. But the Lord of hosts, him you shall honor as holy. Let him be your fear and let him be your dread. And he will become a sanctuary and a stone of offense and a rock of stumbling to both houses of Israel, a trap and a snare to the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and many shall stumble on it. They shall fall and be broken. They shall be snared and taken. This comes right in the middle of Isaiah's prophecy about the virgin conceiving and giving birth to a son. And This prophecy, in context, is about deliverance from the nation of Assyria, which was invading the promised land. And what would go on to happen is the northern kingdom would be taken into exile and driven away from their land forever. And Judah would only survive by taking uh, refuge in the city of Jerusalem until the siege ended. So it was looking bad, very bad. And they call the prophet, and the prophet says, the Lord's going to give you a sign. The virgin shall conceive and bear a son. And there's, there's double fulfillment here that I'm not going to get into. We've talked about it before, but there was a, a son named Maher Shalal Hashbaz. That was a symbolic son. The idea being by the time this kid is old enough to start walking and toddling around, you're not even going to be thinking about Assyria anymore. But there's, of course, layers to that, and, and we're not going to talk about that so much today. That's just the context of where we are. So, while Isaiah finishes prophesying the victory that they're going to have over Assyria. God speaks to him specifically. It says, with a strong hand upon me. God ever said something to you with his strong hand upon you? And you knew what you needed to do. And you knew what God was saying. And God told him, do not call conspiracy all that this people calls conspiracy. And do not fear what they fear. He tells Isaiah, the suspicions and the fears... And the social and political concerns of your people are not to be yours, but instead the thing or person that you fear is to be the Lord himself. We're not worried about what's happening at the highest levels of power because you're trusting in the Lord who is the highest level of power. This is a great warning against focusing on the physical without taking the spiritual into account. And this is what was going on. They, they were not considering the Lord as it will continue and Because we know that this passage would eventually be fulfilled in the day of Jesus, it's remarkable the the parallels between this situation and what was going on in Jesus' day. Let's get a little history lesson here. The Old Testament ends, in the book of Malachi, with Persia in power. But Daniel had prophesied that Persia was going to pass away and Greece was going to come. And that's exactly what happened. Alexander the Great conquered Persia and thereby conquered the nation of Judah. After Alexander died, his kingdom fractured into four pieces and Israel, the promised land, became the battleground, a staging ground for two of those kingdoms, the Ptolemies and the Seleucids, which would be the Syrians and the Egyptian parts of the Greek empire. And because Israel was right in the middle, it was constantly being fought over until eventually there was such a wicked Grecian king named Antiochus Epiphanes who defiled the temple and set up an idol to Zeus and began to sacrifice pigs in the holy place and began to compel the Jews to worship the false gods. There was a man named Judas Maccabeus who was a priest, him and his family. Maccabeus means hammer. Don't you love that? Judah the hammer was his name. And they led a rebellion, a successful rebellion against Greece. This all happened in the 400 years of silence after Malachi 4, before Matthew 1, this is going on. And for 75 years, the Jews ruled themselves. They became independent again. They were under what was called the Hasmonean dynasty, which was a, a, king, a, di- a kingly dynasty of priests, which was a no-no if you know your Bible pretty well. There, those, those things were not to be united. It was to be the house of David and the house of Zadok, and they were supposed to be separate. This is part of the Pharisees' big beef. This is where they began to to come about, to insist upon the law. But for 75 years, they ruled themselves. They were in charge of themselves until 63 B.C., a man named Antipater, the Edomian. Edomian is a Latinization of the term Edomite. And you know that the Edomites were descendants of who? Esau. Esau. This man named Antipater, who was a courtier in in the, the Hasmonean kingdom. He intrigued with Rome, who at that point had been an ally of the Hasmonean kings. Intrigued with Rome to deliver Judea over to Rome and make them part of the empire, which they did, and Antipater became the king of the Jews under the emperor. And Antipater had a son whose name was Herod. Herod the Great. So not only is Herod the Great a bad king, He's also an Edomite. He's a descendant of Esau, ruling over the children of Jacob. And his father was the one that sold the nation out to Rome. And Rome ruled over Israel. They built something called the Antonia Fortress, which was this enormous structure that overlooked the courts of the temple so they could keep an eye on what was going on in there. In fact, that's where the soldiers would come out in the book of Acts to get Paul away from the mob. They had a fortress right there. Pontius Pilate had been sent to crack down on Jewish descent. He had a reputation for being a hard governor. That's why they sent him there. Hellenist culture, which means Greek culture, had saturated the land of Israel. There were some that held to the old ways and spoke Hebrew and grew their beards long and all the rest of it. But many had gone over to the Greek culture. Right? They, were, they were shaving their beards. They were dressing like Greeks. They were learning Greek and learning the literature and learning the philosophy and going to the Hippodrome to watch the chariot races. And the ruling class of the Jews, the priests, were in on the corruption. They were buying and selling the priesthood from the emperor. And so the Jews divided into factions. You know these names. The Sadducees were that elite class I was talking about. They didn't believe in much that was spiritual. They were... They were in charge of the temple. Their job was to keep the peace and to kind of make nice with Rome and be complicit in this leadership of the, of the land so that they could stay in power. They were schemers, and they were modernists in a lot of ways. They didn't have time for talk of angels and resurrections and miracles and things like that. On the other side, you had the Pharisees. Now, the Pharisees were those that were horrified at the corruption of Hebrew culture. So they devoted themselves to the law, but even more than that, to the traditions of the law. It was all about tradition. It was all about what did the fathers say. We don't say new things. We say old things because we don't want anything new because that leads you to be just like these Greeks and Romans. You had one group called the Essenes, a very small group, almost like Jewish Amish people. They withdrew into the desert and they wanted nothing to do with anybody else. They said, we will preserve it ourselves and nobody else is going is to come and touch it. Then you had a group called the Zealots. These were guys that carried swords around. They would assassinate people. And they were waiting for their chance to rebel and overthrow the government. They loved the story of the Maccabees because that was exactly what they wanted to do. Now all of these issues that were going on were real. This was a big deal. And now Caesar Augustus is bringing this census We're going to gather everybody together in your father's house, major inconvenience at this time, especially if your wife is pregnant, as Joseph found out, and we're going to count you so we can tax you. These are real issues. But all of those problems caused the Jews to miss their Messiah, to miss the solution. They were too obsessed with what was going on in Rome and in Jerusalem to discern the times from the scriptures. They called conspiracy what the people called conspiracy, and they feared what they feared. Even when Jesus came and they met Jesus, they were constantly panicking. They, they had the, the council meeting that led to the death of Jesus. They said, "We've got to do something do something about this guy, or Rome's going to come in, and they're going to crack down on us again. We've got to kill him." They were broken. They stumbled over the stumbling block. They fell. They were snared and taken, as Isaiah said. And you know, we all face the same temptation. To focus on the physical at the expense of the spiritual. Isaiah was warned not to think like everybody else. God goes, I see what's happening. Your nation's being invaded. And the northern kingdom's going to get taken away. And y'all are going to be under siege. But you're only supposed to be hoping in and fearing me. And not getting caught up in all the conspiracies and fears of the people. Paul would put it in Ephesians 6.12, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Paul says, our battle is a spiritual one, not a physical one. Obsessing over our problems, our very real problems, not minimizing them, but obsessing over them is a failure to trust God's sovereignty. It's a failure to see that God just might have a purpose in bringing Rome to dominate Judah. Because Rome would build roads that transverse this entire empire, and they would have this standardized culture with a standardized language so that when the gospel went out, it was as easy as it ever could have been. Transportation was easy. They could move about the empire. They could write, and people could understand them. The Lord had set it all up fail to trust God's sovereignty and we look at our own issues and and very often we fail to see God's sovereignty too we fail to see the spiritual dimension behind it and and there's no shortage of conspiracies and fears today is there no shortage all kinds of matters related to the pandemic and the vaccine and the virus and racial and sexual ideologies and we've now had two disputed presidential elections in a row let's see if we can go for three how's that going to go there's rising distrust of each other, and not just the media, but I mean one another now. People concerned about globalism, people concerned about white supremacy. The list goes on and on and on and on. Let me tell you. You are not permitted by the scripture to think about these things the same way everybody else does. Do not call conspiracy all that this people calls conspiracy. And do not fear what they fear. But the Lord of hosts, him you shall honor as holy. Let him be your fear, and let him be your dread. Because these obsessions become stumbling blocks to where we're so concerned at all the noise and all the action over here, we miss what God is about to do, like these people did at the Nativity. Oh, there's so much going on in Rome and Jerusalem, and what's happening? Ah, That's not where the action was. The action was taking place in a little town of Bethlehem, in a stable where there was no room for a little couple to have their baby. So let's read verse 16 through 20 now. He tells him, so he told him, don't do this. Here's he's going to tell him what he is to do. Bind up the testimony. Seal the teaching among my disciples. I will wait for the Lord who is hiding his face from the house of Jacob, and I will hope in him. Behold, I and the children whom the Lord has given me are signs and portents in Israel from the Lord of hosts who dwells on Mount Zion. And when they say to you, inquire of the mediums and the necromancers who chirp and mutter, should not a people inquire of their God? Should they inquire of the dead on behalf of the living? To the teaching and to the testimony. If they will not speak according to this word, it is because they have no dawn. So what does he say? He says, all right. God says, this is what you're not supposed to do. So Isaiah says, here's what I will do. I will bind up the testimony and seal the teaching. What is he saying there? He says, we are going to hold so tightly to this thing that no one's going to be able to take it from us. And in fact, that's why you have the book of Isaiah right there in front of you right now. He says, I and the children whom the Lord has given me are signs from the Lord. And you read his story. His children, like Hosea, were symbolic children. They were prophetic, but you can see he's including his family. It's a similar thing to what Joshua said, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. I'm going to hope in God. God has hidden his face from us. We're being invaded by people that used to skin their, their captives alive, but I'm going to hope in the Lord. Even as I watch city after city fall before this army, I'm going to trust the Lord. And we see that people were tempted to look beyond the Lord For answers to the situation, necromancers and mediums who chirp and mutter. These were occult psychics, right? Magicians, witches, because they were afraid. Lord, what's going to happen? He says, don't worry, I'm going to take care of you. But I want to know what's going to happen. I'm telling you, by the time this little baby grows up, everything's going to be just fine. Okay, well, what does this person have to say? Is there a sign for the battle? Should we read the tea leaves and find what's about to happen? Is there anyone who's had a different vision, more than what Isaiah has done? In times of dread, God's word should be your rock, your surety, right? I stand alone on the word of God, the B-I-B-L-E. But in tough times, the Bible can start to feel, it is not, but it can start to feel insufficient for your situation. That's a temptation that Satan always brings in. Yes, God's word, but. And the Jews in Jesus' day, they had the word. They had memorized it. But they weren't looking to it for help. They were looking to tradition for help. We're going to maintain this culture, maintain this interpretation, maintain the way we dress and the way we eat and what we do on the Sabbath day. Or they were looking to political schemes. The Sadducees are like, we've got this thing right where we want it, and here comes Jesus messing it all up. You know, I just got a call from Pontius Pilate who wanted to know why his his watchman on the guard tower observed some guy flipping over tables in the temple the other day. This guy's messing with the the plan here. All of these solutions, they missed God and they missed his word. And even though they were acting in the name of the Lord, when the Lord in flesh appeared and told them what was what, they argued with him. They wanted to kill him. They they tried to throw him off a cliff one time. Didn't succeed. But they would crucify him later, and you might think, but wait a minute, we can never know. You never know what God's doing until he's done it. Did you know that there's a passage, I believe it's in Amos, where the Bible says, the Lord does nothing without first revealing it to his servants, the prophets? Turn to Luke chapter 2. We see here, in verse 25 and following, two people who knew where the action was, and we would never know their names if it were not for this story. I'm going to start by reading verse 25 through 28 of Luke chapter 2. This is when Mary and Joseph brought Jesus into the temple to be circumcised. It says, Now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came in the Spirit into the temple. And when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms and blessed God. And then there's that famous Nunc Dimittis, the famous song that he sang there. This man, Simeon, was just another old man coming to the temple, praying, fasting, waiting on the Lord. The Spirit of God was upon him, which before Pentecost, you know, was a rare thing. And the Lord told him, before you die, you're going to see the Messiah. And not only that, I'm going to fill you with the Holy Spirit so that you'll be able to recognize the Messiah when he comes. He knew where the action was. Mary and Joseph come in and it's a, it's a crowded space and you're going through the courts and you're trying to you know, get in line for this. And a lot of people believe that Simeon would have been one of those who blessed the child and perhaps even performed the circumcision himself. But, you know, countless babies coming in that day. He sees this one. And and his his jaw drops. He knows this, this is the child. This is him. This is the one we've been waiting for. Everything you all over there praying for and weeping for and crying for, it's this little baby right here. He knew. He knew where the action was. They're probably having meetings back in the Sanhedrin about what are we going to do with Pilate? Do you hear what he did this time? And there's this other rebellion stirring up over here. And what are we going to do about this new census? You know, Caesar's really flexing his muscles here. And he's holding this little baby in his arms. Who cares what was going on in those meetings? What we care about is that Jesus Christ was there. Look down at verse 36 of that same chapter. And there was a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel of the tribe of Asher. I should mention Asher was one of the ten tribes that had fallen under the northern kingdom. So the fact that she's here is very significant. And it also shows that both houses of Israel are receiving the Messiah at this point but of the tribe of Asher. She was advanced in years, having lived with her husband seven years from when she was a virgin, and then as a widow until she was 84. She did not depart from the temple, worshiping with fasting and prayer night and day. And coming up at that very hour, she began to give thanks to God and to speak of him to all who were waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. Same thing. This woman, devoted to prayer and worship and fasting, 84 years old, and she sees baby Jesus and her knees buckle. She can't believe it. And she starts telling everybody. The Messiah's been born. Okay, all right, Miss Anna. Thank you very much. That's that's sweet. She is kind of getting on in years, isn't she? No, I saw him. He was here. Ask Simeon, he'll tell you. And they're like, well, he's crazy too, you know. They knew. Those who were spiritually focused were able to know what the Lord was doing in the moment. A man like Nathanael, who was a righteous, godly man, heard Jesus say one thing and knew he was the Son of God, knew he was the Messiah. The spiritually focused are able to know what the Lord is doing. Simeon and Anna had rejected the world's solutions. They weren't trying to fight the fight and maintain their culture like the Pharisees were. They weren't trying to overthrow the government like the Zealots were. They weren't trying to compromise with Rome like the Sadducees were or withdraw like the Essenes. They just trusted God. I'm sure all kinds of people were telling them, that's not enough. You can't just pray and expect God to do things. You got to get up and act. Aren't you going to fight? Don't you believe that God will help you in the battle? Oh man, the same is true for us you got to have spiritual focus to know where the action is. We might think we know, because it makes a lot of noise. So many today are using their concerns and obsessions to fail to do what Simeon and Anna did, which is what Isaiah had said, which was, to the testimony, to the word, bind it up, seal the teaching. They were devoted to God's word. And so, they saw the Messiah. But many, in these days, and in every day, think that their problems are so magnificent that God's word needs just a little bit of help. You've seen this today. Some people, because of the day, in the days like this, right, in 2021, we need a more active, aggressive theology. right? You, you have, I've seen this all over the place. Mostly I've seen this online because not a lot of people are brave enough to say it out loud yet. But it's coming they say, oh, so what, I'm, being a Christian means I'm just supposed to sit by and let people ruin my country and ruin my culture? Other people are saying, yeah, the Bible's good, but you really can't understand it properly unless you've got these other extra books. Yeah, the Bible has some things, but they're kind of weird, kind of problematic, so let this guy sort you out. You know, he has his PhD, so you know he knows what he's talking about. Some people even, and this is a minority, but just watch out for it, y'all, they want to return to paganism. This is, this is a growing thing. And I'm not talking like, oh, you know, this is kind of cute, shock rock, trying to scare mom and dad. I'm talking seriously. They're saying, you know what, if all Jesus can tell us to do is to love our enemies and turn the other cheek, then what does Thor and Odin have to say? Christianity stole our culture anyway. So we ought to get back to it. The Bible is being left by the wayside. Actually, we left the Bible behind first, and that's why we're in trouble right now. The Bible is very clear about our attitude in times like this. Don't call it fear. Don't call it conspiracy. Seal the testimony in your own heart and in your own family. What does it have to say about times like this? It says, well, so far as it lives with, depends on you, live peaceably with all men. Oh, that doesn't satisfy our flesh, does it? That's why God's got to be your fear, so that you know. This is where the battle is. And Paul goes, no, it's not. It's up there. You can't even see it. You have no idea what's going on. Colossians 3 Verses two through three says, set your mind on things that are above, not things that are on earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. Let everyone else go after the chirps and the mutters of the world. Extra books, reinterpreted doctrine. Everybody's an expert all of a sudden. As for us, as for me and our children, we will speak, as he says, only according to the word. He says, if you do not speak according to this word, it is because you have no dawn. That is, you're in darkness and the sun's never coming up if you don't speak according to God's word. When when Jesus is called the morning star, right? When the morning star began to rise over Israel, those that were not sealing the testimony in their own lives, they did not see the sun dawning in their lives. But the ones who were, they saw. Verse 21 and 22, back in Isaiah chapter 8 now. Those who have no dawn, those who fail to seal the testimony, they will pass through the land greatly distressed and hungry. And when they are hungry, they will be enraged and will speak contemptuously against their king and their God and turn their faces upward. The idea is mocking God, looking up to the Lord. And they will look to the earth, but behold distress and darkness, the gloom of anguish, and they will be thrust into thick darkness. this is the warning. Isaiah is telling them what to do, and now he's telling them what happens if you don't. If you let your temporal concerns drive you from God, drive you into other stuff. He gives us a little sequence here. There's four things. The first one is weariness. Right? They will pass through the land greatly distressed and hungry. When you set God aside, you'll feel dry because you've left the well. Why am, why, why am I not feeling very good? I haven't had any water to drink because I have not been at a well for a long time. This is why so many in Jesus' day, they were hungry and thirsty for a message, weren't they? Especially those that were deep in their sins. He began to preach and they flocked to him. They flocked to John the Baptist. They wanted to make Jesus king by force. They wanted what he had to say because they thought they had the Lord, but they didn't. God was a cultural icon. He was an afterthought. The Torah was there to wave in the face of the Romans that were trying to steal your culture and steal your country. And so when the real thing came, people got a drop of God's living water on their tongue, they realized how thirsty they were. This is why people will say things to Jesus like, I'll follow you wherever you go. Back then it was quite literal, wasn't it? Not I'm going to obey you. No, I'm going to leave everybody and go wherever you go. Weariness. When you reject the Lord. Not even rejecting the Lord. You just set aside the word. You're not not binding up the testimony. you got this other stuff. right? My parents used to tell me that growing up. You need to drink water, Tyler. What? I had something. You've had apple juice and soda and coffee. That's not the same thing. (laughs) Drink some water. The second thing is rage. They'll get angry. And when they are hungry, they will be enraged. In Jesus' day... They grew angry because God was no longer their anchor. So they were thirsty. And when you're thirsty and hungry long enough, you start to get angry and blame God. They said, God's not giving us what we want. We want Rome out. We want our kids that are going after Hellenistic culture to come back and grow their beards long and start speaking Hebrew again. And God's not doing that. So they started to get angry at the Lord himself. And then when Jesus showed up and started giving them the gospel, they wanted nothing to do with it because it wasn't what they wanted. And then there's blasphemy. They will speak contemptuously and turn their faces upward. You don't look a king in the eye, right? You don't look God in the eye. But they'll turn their faces upward and speak contemptuously with their finger in God's face. Isn't that what they did, that blasphemy? They say, fine, if that's God's solution, I don't want anything to do with God. He doesn't understand the severity of what we're going through right now. Yes, I hate the thought of crucifying a man without a fair trial, but you know what? Jesus is messing up this this tenuous peace that we've got going with Rome. He's teaching people to to believe in miracles again. We can't have people believing in miracles because then they're not going to be focused on the here and now. We've got to get rid of him. Blasphemy. All those factions. The only thing that united all those factions was their hatred of Jesus Christ. And they said in John 19, we have no king but Caesar. Caesar. That's blasphemy. That is straight up blasphemy. And then the fourth step is darkness. When you've allowed yourself to grow so hungry and so weary that it's driven you to rage to the point where you're going to cast off the Lord entirely, you'll walk in darkness. You'll have nothing left. He says anguish and gloom and distress without God. And that's exactly what happened in Jesus' day. One short generation after they crucified the Messiah, Rome did come in. And they destroyed the city of Jerusalem. They raised the temple to the ground. The Ark of the Covenant was lost forever. And the people were scattered all over the world. And they remain, according to Romans 11, under judgment to this day. Jeremiah chapter 2, verses 12 through 13 says, Be appalled, O heavens. Be shocked. Be utterly desolate, declares the Lord. For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living water, and hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. We've got to watch out. Because if we get on that same trajectory, it's troublesome. You've got to reverse course when you find yourself doing this. Because of our obsession with whatever our issues are, and it doesn't have to be big, wide social things. It can be your own personal life. There's this one situation that you need worked out. But when you obsess over those things, you get thirsty. When you fail to fill your heart with the Word of God and instead you're pumping it full of you know, worries and complaints and you're pumping it full of TV and the news and you're pumping it full of other stuff. You're, it's junk food. It doesn't satisfy you. And you start to find yourself being weary and thirsty. And so then what happens? We get angry. People start to claim the need for something more, right? Right? They say, well, we're serving the Lord. And it's like, well, no, you're not. You set aside the word. You've still got it on the the pulpit, but the thing you've got open is somebody else's thing. What this philosopher says, what this podcaster has to say, what this movement is all about. And they think they're serving God, but they're, they're spiritually thirsty, so they start to blame God. And they rage against God for not handling injustice. The Bible doesn't do enough to handle the injustice in the world. The Bible doesn't, tell us to, doesn't give us enough permission to stand up and drive these people away or fix my personal life. So God's abandoned us. No, he hasn't. And already there you can see the blasphemy. People that say, well, then what do we need God for if he can't solve our problems? How many people have gotten so far into this strange sexual deviance now that they say, you know what, I've, I've deconstructed my Christian faith and I don't need it anymore. It happens all the time. It's blasphemy. And you're going to see this soon for the other, the other folks, too. People will say, you know what? If, if this is all Jesus has to say to us, then maybe we should look somewhere else. As Christians are only an annoyance and a hindrance to us anyway. And that can only lead to desolation, distress, and darkness. Because there's no light anywhere else other than Christ. And that's Satan's goal. He doesn't care which road you take to perdition, because there's only one narrow way that leads to life, and that's Christ Jesus. Those who look to the earth, verse 22, are unable to ask the right questions or gain the right answers. Because you don't know where the action is. All your focus is over here when you're not seeing what God is about to do. And then when God says what he's going to do, you get angry and you demand he fix your thing. God, look at my life. Look at my my job. Why don't you come in and fix that? Lord goes, I got something else I want to do. Well, then I don't need you then. Because this is what I need. No, no, no. That's... That's headed into darkness right there. Jesus Christ was born and his people missed him. They misunderstood him and then they murdered him. But when we get to chapter 9 of Isaiah, this passage that ends with gloom and distress and thick darkness takes a sharp turn. And now that we know where that context is, let's read Isaiah 9 verses 1 and 2. But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. All this talk about light shining. It makes sense when you realize where he just left us, wasn't it? that obsessing over the things of the world and its conspiracies and its fears only leads you to darkness, but out of the deepest darkness will shine the brightest light. Man, if you could have heard Isaiah preach this, what must that have been like? The tide changes, the coming hope. Where is this light gonna come from? He tells us, he tells us. The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, beyond the Jordan, the Galilee, He says it was formally brought into contempt. Yeah, how how often do you hear about Zebulun and Naphtali when you're talking about the tribes of the Old Testament, right? They were the farthest north. They were up near the the Phoenician cities, Tyre and Sidon. Zebulun was a seafaring tribe of Israel. And then after Rome came in and the land was subdivided and after all the, the things had shaken out, you had Judea in the south with Jerusalem. You had Samaria to the north. And then above that, still, you had Galilee. Which was right up next to Syria and all these other nations, which is why it was called Galilee of the Nations. And nations in Hebrew is Goyim, it's also translated Gentiles. Galilee of the Gentiles. Deep darkness. Tyre and Sidon were their neighbors. Jezebel came from Sidon. The king of Tyre was used as a metaphor to describe Satan and his fall from heaven. Deep darkness. But he says, from there, a light is going to shine. The place where nobody will be looking for it. Because everybody's eyes are focused on the noise rather than what I'm about to do. He prophesies where the region would be, where the Messiah would minister. In the most unlikely part of Israel. You read through the Old Testament. Where is the Messiah going to come? Oh, for sure. He'll probably, you know, Jericho, Hebron, and Jerusalem, and cities like that. No. How about Zebulun and Naphtali? The two tribes, when you're trying to remember the 12 tribes of Israel, you're like, there's two more. I can't remember their names. In Isaiah's day, all the eyes were on Nineveh, the capital of Assyria. All eyes were on Samaria, the capital of the north that was about to fall. All eyes were on Jerusalem. In Jesus' day, all eyes were on Jerusalem again for different reasons. And on Rome, what is Caesar going to do next? What, what are the Sanhedrin going to do? How are we going to handle this situation? But y'all, that's not where the action was. They were looking in the wrong place. Isaiah comes and tells them, says, that's not where you're supposed to be looking. Stop focusing on all that. In Jesus' day, they were all concerned. You know, they, I'm sure they were having all kinds of you know, loud discussions in, in the, the pubs and the bars around Bethlehem. Can you believe this taxation? Can you believe that they would tell us to get up and move like we're cattle? We've just got to jump. And here comes the tax collector. And there's one of those collaborators. You want to beat them up after, after we're done over here? And they had no idea that they were right in the center of the action. Some harried innkeeper trying to find room for everybody. And some man comes up and says, hello, I'd like to find a room for my wife. I. I don't have any room. Sleep in the barn if you want to. He had no idea. Because he was in darkness. They were all in darkness. But in that little town of Bethlehem, a little baby was born in a stable and heaven opened up and the angels began to sing because they had the spiritual eyes to see where the action was. He grows up in Nazareth, which again, that righteous man, Nathaniel said, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Think about the part of Birmingham where you would never even want to drive through after dark. That's where Jesus grew up. Can anything good come out of there? Can anything good come out of Galilee? He ministered in a place that they called Galilee of the Gentiles. What an insult coming from a Jewish mouth, huh? But that was the very Son of God, the incarnate Word. If you could see the whole world as as spiritual darkness, there's this one bright light, impossibly bright, shining out of Galilee. And nobody saw it, but very few. This explains and, and really brings a lot of flavor and light to something that happened in the book of John. John seven fifty two. This is when Nicodemus is, is pretty much the only time sticking up for Jesus in the, in the council room. He said, Hey man, are we going to crucify this guy? We haven't even given him a trial yet. And it says in John seven fifty two, they replied, are you from Galilee too? Search and see that no prophet arises from Galilee. Now, directly after that, no prophet arises from Galilee. Directly after that, you've got the story of the woman caught in adultery. And as soon as that story is over, the next thing that Jesus says in John 8, 12, Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. He said, no prophet arises from Galilee. And Jesus goes, I am the light of the world. What's, what's he saying? What is he responding? He's referring to this right here. Those who walked in darkness have seen a bright light. And where's that light coming from? Galilee of the nations. They were wrong. No prophet arises from Galilee. Yeah, but one's about to and his name is Jesus. I am the light of the world. He was not what they were looking for. They, they wanted Revelation 19, Jesus. Riding on a white horse, a sharp sword proceeding out of his mouth with which he will strike down the nations. yes. But he came as a little baby born in Bethlehem, raised in Nazareth, preaching in Galilee. They didn't want him. But it's what they needed. They were looking for a conqueror or a politician or a teacher that would tell them exactly what they wanted to hear. A 2 Timothy kind of teacher to scratch their itching ears. But Jesus was concerned with the heart where the real battle was to be fought according to Ephesians 6. He comes out and you, you, you go to hear your Messiah, your promised king, the son of David. He's going to be speaking. Let's go to the wilderness and hear him. And he opens up and says, blessed are the merciful for they shall receive mercy. Well, what about Rome? Love your enemies. Bless those who curse you. Don't you know what they did for me? Pray for those who spitefully use you. But They're trying to persecute us. They're trying to you know, grind us into dust. Blessed are you when they persecute you. Well, what am I supposed to do? What, are we supposed to let it happen? If anyone strikes you on the right cheek, turn and let it hit the other one too. Don't you know how these soldiers are taking our stuff? They just come in and they say, hey, give me your jacket, I'm going to take it. Because if anybody wants to give you, take your, your coat, give me your jacket too. You know, they, they make me carry their stuff. They can only make me carry it for one mile, but I mean, that's still a long way. He goes, well, if anybody asks you to go one mile, go with them too. If you know that somebody's going to sue you? You know what? Just go talk to them in person and, and figure it all out. You're the light of the world. You're supposed to be shining the same light that I'm shining, Jesus said. And everybody loved him except the religious experts. Because their eyes were elsewhere. They were focused on the noise and they didn't know where the action was. They had no idea that this troublesome preacher from Galilee was the most significant thing that would ever happen in the history of the world. Christmas means that light has come into the darkness where we were all stumbling and wandering and chasing after foolish things. Lord, help us. And God heard the prayers of all men and says, I hear you. And I respond. And his response to every injustice and every evil and every horrible thing that happened was to send baby Jesus to be born on Christmas Day. So you best pay attention to that, huh? John 1 verses 9 through 12 says, The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him. Yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Who cares about Rome? Children of God. A heavenly inheritance. Jesus Christ said, you will sit with me on my throne, and I will give you a a new name that no one else will know but you and me. I'll make you a pillar in my temple. And we say, oh, Lord, but... Don't you know what's happening with, you know, the, the politicians? Didn't you hear the news of what happened with the next crazy thing they did in Portland last week? Oh, Lord, don't you understand what's, what's happening in our schools or in our halls of government? Don't you understand what's happening in those churches? God says, yes, I know about all of that. And my solution was to send my son, Jesus Christ. And the thing I told you to do was go and make disciples of all the nations. Jesus does not offer anyone help in their own obsessions. He frees you from your obsessions, doesn't he? Lord, please help me manage my crack addiction. Because I love crack, but it's really not good for me to have so much of it. So, Lord, would you please, like, are you crazy? When you, if you have an addict in the family or somebody that's dealing with something like that, and they start talking like that, you know they're not ready. Okay, well, we'll have this conversation again next Thanksgiving, I guess. The Lord said, no, no, no. I'm here to uproot the things that you love and plant something new in your heart. He frees you from them. The gospel reshapes your priorities. I mean, think about Paul. Paul thought he knew what he was going to do. You know, we just watch It's a Wonderful Life in my house, right? I know what I'm going to do tomorrow and the next day and next year and the year after. That was Paul. He was on the fast track to being an elder of his people. And he saw the risen Lord Jesus and he says, I need to go to the desert for like three years and figure this out. Because it changed everything. He says, it'd be better for me to go out and get beat up every couple weeks preaching to Gentiles than go back and try to maintain that. Because if my people have rejected Jesus, then there's nothing to be done for them. And there's plenty of people preaching there, so I better go out to where nobody has heard. It reshapes your priorities. That's what Christmas reminds us. The birth of Jesus made everything else look small. That's what Isaiah reminded us too. All those problems that they were worried about. Assyria is coming in and you know what they're like. Jonah wouldn't even preach to Assyria. Nineveh, remember that? That was their capital city. He goes, I'd rather flee across the ocean to Spain than go preach to those people. But he says, listen, those people are going to be broken. He says, everything that you're afraid of and concerned about is ultimately resolved in the coming Messiah. He promises, look at this, renewal of the nation, joy to the people, liberation from their oppressors, all these things that they were seeking elsewhere, the mediums and the necromancers and their political alliances. He says, you're you're looking in the wrong place. In Jesus's day, what did they want? They wanted liberty from Rome. They wanted godlessness removed. They wanted their children to stop worshiping idols. They wanted their own independence they wanted prosperity and to have, stopped being bled by their, by their taxes. Hey, all those things are good things to want, but they were looking in all the wrong places for them. That little baby in Jerusalem would be the one not just to get rid of Rome. He would turn those Gentiles into allies. That gospel would sweep through the Roman Empire and eventually turn it on its head What am I going to do with all the sin in the nation, Lord? Jesus says, I'm going to go and preach forgiveness to them. And countless numbers of them are going to walk away from their sins. I'm going to uproot it in their hearts. In fact, I believe it was in um, Ephesus. Paul was preaching the gospel and so many people were getting saved that the people that made silver idols were losing money. And so they staged a fake riot to try and get Paul out of town because there was no market for sin anymore. Because the gospel had changed everything. There were no law differences. There was no, like, you can't sell idols to Christians. There was nothing. They just were so in love with Christ that there was nowhere, no place to buy an idol anymore. All who serve the Lord Jesus are blessed. They were looking for prosperity. Jesus promises abundant life. They're looking for a king. Jesus will reign forever and ever from Jerusalem. 2 Corinthians 1.20 says, All the promises of God find their yes in him that is why it is through him that we utter our amen to God for his glory well what are we going to do about fill in the blank what's your thing what are we going to do about it Jesus is the solution oh come on be serious I am serious every good and perfect gift comes from God alone are you looking for justice Jesus is offering freedom to the oppressed and forgiveness to the oppressor isn't that better We're looking for prosperity. The Bible says that righteousness exalts a nation. Jesus can not only bless you, but he can make it so that it is immaterial to you whether or not you are prosperous. Looking for deliverance from this group or those people or that nation? Jesus Christ will end every foe and preserve us from the coming judgment. More than all that, he offers you forgiveness of sins and eternal life forever. All of these things that worry us, when you give them to Jesus, it's no longer a, a defeat. It's a not yet victory. We're just waiting. It's going to happen. Man, there was one part in the Old Testament, they wanted to kill Elisha because the city was under siege and it was so bad that they were cooking and eating their own children. So they said, Elisha keeps on telling us that God's going to deliver us. You know what? I bet had it. We're going to cut his head off today. But Elisha knew that very day while they were doing all that, God had already delivered them. They just didn't know it yet. The light had shown and they just couldn't see it because they weren't looking for it. You've got to keep your eyes where the action is in Jesus Christ, in that little baby born in a manger who would rise to die and rise again for our sins and who's coming back for us one day. For unto us a child is born and to us a son is given. on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this where's all that hope going to come from how is the light going to shine how are we going to see deliverance a child is born we've already seen the birth of his son who is a sign of deliverance from assyria but isaiah says but the day is coming when there's going to be another child born and it's not just going to be some baby it's going to be born of a virgin And he's going to signal the end of all injustice and all sin forever. And he's going to be, you know, his government will increase. But when his government increases, so does peace. That's who Jesus is. The son of David. He's a good ruler. He's a wonderful counselor. He's a powerful God. He's the good father. He's our peace bringer. And he never, ever fails. Knowing this, what ought the Jews to have done? During the time of Jesus, they should have been hyper-focused on the coming of the Messiah. Don't you think? A watch should have been set on Bethlehem. Every baby who's born, we got some questions. (laughs) We got to know a few things about this baby. They should have assiduously researched the line of David. Who is still descended from David and could potentially give birth to his son? Every child they have, again, we're going to watch in this baby. Commitment to fasting and prayer. Once they found out that Zechariah had been struck mute by an angel because the forerunner of the Messiah was about to be born, they say, all right, Zechariah, we'd like to get to know your relatives and your friends here. But they missed it. They were seeking after their own priorities, and so they missed the only one who could supply them with the answer to their priorities. Psalm 84 says, One day in your courts is better than a thousand elsewhere. I'd rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of wickedness. For the Lord God is a sun and a shield. The Lord bestows favor and honor. No good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly. The psalmist there says, I would rather be the one that opens the door and says, Welcome to the temple. Have a nice day. Than to be some wealthy, powerful sheik in wickedness. Because God doesn't hold anything good from those who walk uprightly. So we think, but if I... You're telling me just to rededicate my life to prayer and to seal the testimony focus on the word and discipleship in the church? What's that going to do? You need to have the attitude of the psalmist that says it's better to have just a little with the Lord than to have everything you could ever want in wickedness. God has promised to hold no good thing away from us. He did not even withhold his son Jesus from us. So why are we afraid that his way is not enough? And forget we, you, your life, Why are you afraid that God's word and his ways are not enough? I understand the fear and the pain of life. I suffer the same anxieties you do. But we must never let our fear drive us from Jesus, which, as we read, starts by supplementing Jesus. Jesus and. Jesus plus. Jesus as interpreted by. We can't lose the simplicity of worship. Like Israel should have done, we ought to set a watch in the spirit for the Lord. Say, Lord, if you're going to do something, I want to be the first to know about it. Like Simeon and Anna, who had committed their lives to fasting and prayer. That tells us Israel did not have to miss their Messiah. It was foretold. God knows the hearts of men. But they didn't have to. And neither do you. We had to be devoted to his word, learning everything there is to know about it. Not just how it, you know, okay, yeah, 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 but how does this relate to my life and my relevant details? No, no, no. Learn what it means and then interpret your life through that. To be in prayer, fasting regularly, boldly preaching the gospel. If you really believe, as I do and you must, that the gospel is the only solution for a broken world or a broken nation or a broken city, then take responsibility for it and go tell somebody. These things are so basic. But those that did the basics were the ones that were able to see where the action was. If the Lord brings about another revival, I don't want to find out about it 20 years later. I want God to say, hey, I'm doing something in Bethlehem. The light's shining in Galilee. Or wherever it is. And that will always feel weird. Because the world's priorities will always be different from our own. Because they don't know the truth. It's not that they're stupid. It's just that they're ignorant. They don't know the truth. Every fear, every anxiety, every worry finds its solution in God's yes, God's amen, who is Jesus Christ, our Lord. We live in a day when things are changing. New battle lines are being drawn, right? The, the old like left and right and, and conservative and this, it doesn't really fit anymore, does it? Like I kind of end up on this side, but I don't really like being over here. And I don't, that's all changing. The culture has moved on from the church and from Jesus. They've stopped hating us and now they just don't care. That's almost worse, isn't it? Now more than ever, you must shine brightly. And without making any material change to how we live, our separation ought to become more and more stark as the world moves away. Because we know the truth, that light has shone into the darkness, and we've seen it. You have been blessed in a way that so many in Israel were not blessed, to see the light when it shines, to celebrate it every year with songs and with lights and with the giving of gifts. On that day, 2,000 years ago in Bethlehem, little baby Jesus came into this world. The angels sang, heaven was ripped open and all the angelic armies began to shout in praise to the Lord. The shepherds rejoiced and came and bowed at his feet. Kings came and gave gifts to this little boy. God's people missed it, but not all of them. Those who knew where the action was did not. Those who knew that the noise and the tumult and the hustle and bustle of this world, yeah, it's important because it's happening in our time, but in the grand scheme of God's sovereignty, the reality of the gospel and what's happening in the spirit is always more significant and more important. We are blessed to live in tumultuous times, as did so many in the scriptures. And the hope for Isaiah, for Anna and Simeon, For Mary and Joseph, and for us here today, is, was, and always will be Jesus Christ, the Son of God, sent from heaven to be born on that first Christmas day.